What's up everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Da Vinci Cases. Alright, so the way this works is we've got a clinical case followed by a board style question. So we're going to go through the question stem, point out the relevant clinical findings, take a look at the question and the answer choices, and then kind of divert for a minute and go through the relevant concepts to answering the question. Then we'll come back and apply those concepts that we went over to answering the question. Alright, so we have a 21 year old male. He was in a fight late last night at about 2 a.m. and then ended with him being struck in the right side of the head with a baseball bat. So he had a blunt force trauma to the side of the head. However, he was initially conscious following the head injury, but then later in the day, he fell unconscious and was unresponsive this afternoon. So this is important. Immediately following this blunt trauma to the head, he was conscious, but then a few hours later, he fell unconscious and was totally unresponsive. So he's taken to the emergency department, he's still unconscious, and he's unresponsive to commands. On neurological exam, he occasionally becomes agitated, so even though he's unconscious and he's unresponsive, he can still be agitated and have motor movement. And then his right eye is shown in the picture here. So if we look at the picture, here's his right eye, here's his left eye. You can see he's looking ahead. The left eye is in the neutral position. And then the right eye is not in the neutral position. It's actually deviated down and out. And then if you look at the pupil here, it's much larger than the left pupil. And that's important here. Let's, let's take a look. The right pupil has no response to light. So not only is it severely dilated, it's also in response to light, the pupil is supposed to constrict to restrict the amount of light that comes into the eye. And so by being completely unresponsive, that that's indicates an abnormality here. So his gag reflex is present, and that's significant because the afferent limb of the gag reflex is cranial nerve 9, or the glossopharyngeal, and then the motor limb is cranial nerve 10, or the vagus nerve. So you're testing the integrity of these nerves, but then you're also these nerves have nuclei in the, in the brainstem, and so you're also potentially testing if those nuclei are affected. So it seems like those are intact. Also on the exam, you notice that the right side extremities move spontaneously and in response to pain. So that shows that those, both the sensory limb and the motor limb of, of the pain response are intact, on the right side at least. Let's look on the left side. So then the left side extremities do not move, not even in response to pain. So there's some kind of interruption on, on the left side, in, uh, either in the sensory or in the motor limb of, of the pain response. Reflexes are 2 plus in the right upper and lower extremity, that's normal. However, they're three plus throughout the left upper and lower extremity. So he's got hyperreflexia on the left side. And then you have a head CT that was obtained. So as far as the hyperreflexia, that's an upper motor neuron lesion, which corresponds to a lesion in the central nervous system. If you remember, so you have a upper motor neuron that comes from the brain, and then it comes down and it usually crosses over in the case of the corticospinal tract, crosses over in the brainstem, and then it innervates your lower motor neuron. And what's significant about this is that the upper motor neurons actually provide a, a sort of a depressing or inhibitory input to the lower motor neuron that keep it from being high overreactive. Now, if you lose this upper motor neuron input, the reactivity or the impulsivity of the lower motor neuron increases or returns to its basal rate, and so that's why you see this hyperreflexia. So hyperreflexia is indicative of an upper motor neuron lesion, which is confined to the central nervous system, which given that this is a head injury, it's likely that this is in the brain or the brainstem. So a head CT is, is obtained. That's very typical in head trauma here because you want to be looking for an intracranial hemorrhage. And so this is very significant here. We'll talk about this in just a few seconds. 
So really, before we get to the imaging, you want to think about what are the key history and, and exam findings here. And we've discussed these as we've gone through the stem, but just to kind of tie it up here into a concise list here, he received a blunt force trauma to the side of the, to the right side of the head. It's a good chance he had a skull fracture with that, given that it was a baseball bat. He was initially conscious, then he fell unconscious and unresponsive, and that's continued here in the exam. If you look at here, on exam, he's lack of consciousness, and, but he's, but he, and he also has agitation. The right pupil is fixed and dilated and also in this down and out position. And then he's also got, on, on the left side, left upper and lower extremity paralysis and hyperreflexia. And so it all, and it also, we have this evidence of an intracranial bleed here. So let's, let's, there's a lot going on here. Let's take it one step at a time. Let's look at the imaging first and hammer that out because this is actually a very high yield image that you're going to need to know for your school exams, your board exams, potentially shelf exams during clinical rotations, and even in, when you're out in your residency training and practice. So when you're talking about a blunt force trauma to the head, you want to be thinking about an epidural hematoma and a subdural hematoma. So first, let's talk about an epidural hematoma. This is an arterial bleed versus a subdural is a venous bleed. Now, there's two significance to that. So a epidural hematoma is due to a temporal bone fracture which then causes a laceration of the middle meningeal artery. And so the middle meningeal artery then contributes to an epidural bleed. So if we look at, this is the skull bone here, then you have the dura here, and then you have the brain here. So an epidural hematoma is just as the name implies, it's a bleed above the dura, so epidural. Subdural is gonna be a bleed below the dura like this, as in the name, subdural. So it's very simple here. It's just in relation to the dura. Now, what's important to know is that an epidural hematoma on imaging here, as here's the, in our patient, has this convex shape, or also known as a lens shape to it. The reason for that is, if we look here, is that during development, the skull bones will fuse and, fo and form these cranial sutures. At these cranial sutures, the dura is actually very tightly adherent. To the surface of the skull. So let's say this is the dura here, and then you know it continues on like this, and so on. So what happens is, is that just adjacent to the trauma, so let's say this is where the temporal, temporal bone fracture was, middle meningeal artery is, is lacerated, and then you begin having your bleed here. And so what happens is, is that as the bleed accumulates, or as the blood accumulates, it continues to expand. However, it's confined to this pocket of the dura because they're so tightly adherent to the surface of the skull at these cranial sutures. And so as you can see here, as I'm continuing to color this in, you can see where it gets this lens-like shape, this convex shape like this, and that's because of this. And what's important is that blood from an epidural hematoma cannot travel past these areas where the dura firmly attaches to the skull. So what's important to know is that the blood does not cross cranial sutures and is confined to the area adjacent to the trauma. So in this patient, the trauma was likely right here, you know, the middle meningeal arteries here, and then you have the bleeding here, and then where the dura is tightly adherent is probably in these two places here, and then you can see where this pocket of blood is forming. What's important on this imaging from our patient also is this has progressed to the point where it has caused a midline shift in the brain. That's when you start seeing symptoms of herniation, such as losing consciousness. This is why this patient, this is very classic for an epidural hematoma. You have what's called a lucid period following the injury. The patient is still conscious. 
they can still communicate, they can understand. And then a few hours later, they drop down and they're totally unconscious and totally unresponsive. And that's because during those period of few hours, you've had the blood continuing to accumulate in this pocket here. And then eventually it gets big enough where it causes shifting of the brain and then it leads to unconsciousness. And then that's when the patient's really in trouble. The other important thing is that since this is an arterial bleed, this is a higher pressure bleed. So this is going to be much more serious and much more acute. It needs to be dealt with and treated immediately. Now, subdural, since this is a venous blood, what, what this is caused by is so you have the skull up here. You have what's called the superior sagittal sinus, which is one of the main veins draining the, draining the skull and draining the brain. So we'll draw here a crude drawing here. That'll be the, the two hemispheres of the brain like this. And what you have is you have these bridging veins that drain the hemispheres and go into the superior sagittal sinus here, SSS. And so what happens is the way a subdural hematoma occurs is where you have tearing of these veins. And the patients that are at risk for this are obviously patients that have severe head trauma, but really patients who are elderly or who have significant dementia or Alzheimer's or patients that are alcoholics because what increases the risk for these is brain atrophy. Because if the brain atrophies and, you know, pulls away, you're going to increase tension on these veins and increase the risk of them tearing. So as a result of the, that this being below the dura, a subdural hematoma is not confined to these dural sutures like this. So as you can see, it's more of a crescent shape, and it's going to span a much wider area of the skull here. And so that's, that's the way on imaging you can tell the difference. Still very serious, still can accumulate and cause shifting of the brain, and you can see that here, very significant midline shift very serious situation. The way you deal with both of these is you do a crani emergent craniotomy and then you take you do a take off the skull plate here and then you surgically drain the hematoma in either case. Now that we've established that it's an epidural hematoma, let's look at this diagram here to see what this is trying to tell us. So the eye is down and out and looking straight ahead and then the pupil is fixated and non-reactive to light. So what does that mean? So what we want to look at is let's say this is the right eye. This is the motions of the eye. The muscle responsible for this is Moving the eye up is the superior rectus muscle, which is cranial nerve 3. Pulling the eye medially is the medial rectus, which is also cranial nerve 3. Pulling it down is inferior rectus, which is also cranial nerve 3. Superior oblique, you can see the superior oblique here where it's coming in like this and it wraps around this pulley. And you can see if it muscles contract, they contract, they're going to pull tighter together. It's going to push the eye downward and outward like this. So it's going to push it outward like this and down. This is actually has its own cranial nerve cranial nerve 4, the trochlear nerve, and then you have lateral rectus here, which also has its own cranial nerve. This is the abducens nerve, and this is what moves the eye laterally. And then you have inferior oblique, which moves the eye upward, and you can see that here, where it's attaching here, and if it moved up, it's going to move the eye up this way. And this is cranial nerve 3. So if you look, the eye is going out, down and out, and if you look, cranial nerve 4, superior oblique, if it were to act on a pose, is going to push the eye down and out. So if you've lost cranial nerve 3, you've lost all these muscles that could provide a corresponding force that would maintain the eye in a neutral position. And so you've if you've lost cranial nerve 3, then cranial nerve 4 and cranial nerve 6 can act completely unopposed and cause these muscles to pull the eye down and out. And so as a result, this is a classic sign of ocular motor nerve palsy. The other thing is the pupil is fixated and non-reactive delight. So we have cranial nerve 3 here. It brings in and has these parasympathetic fibers that innervate sphincter pupillae, which is the muscle that is responsible for constricting the pupil. So if it contracts, it's going to cause narrowing of the pupil to limit the amount of light that comes into the eye. 
And this also has a counterpart muscle known as the dilator pupillae, which is innervated by the sympathetic fibers from the cervical sympathetic fibers. And so if you lose these, this parasympathetic input from cranial nerve three, the sympathetic fibers to dilator pupillae will cause this muscle to act unopposed. And so what you'll have is significant dilation of the pupil. And it's where, and since you can't have that response to the pupillary reflex, which the afferent limb is cranial nerve two, the optic nerve, and then the motor limb is cranial nerve three. Reason it, it is the motor limb is because it causes this constriction of the pupil. So if you've lost that, it's gonna be completely non-reactive to the light. This is also known as a blown pupil. And so you can see it's severely dilated here and completely down and out like that. So this is an ocular motor nerve palsy. And again, this is because you have the motor innervation to these extraocular muscles, and then you have this parasympathetic input, sphincter pupillae. You could also see complete ptosis of the eyelid and, and this patient's unconscious, so it's, it's harder to evaluate that. But if he were conscious, you would see significant drooping of the eyelid. Now, you may be wondering, how is an ocular motor nerve palsy and an epidural hematoma connected? Now, this is a very classic scenario that's tested on exams very frequently because it makes you draw connections between a number of different concepts. So we'll talk about brain herniation. This is a great diagram because as you can see, it actually already shows a patient having an epidural hematoma. So you can see where blood is accumulating here. Here it is in that crescent shape we talked about. And you can see it's gonna start pushing on the brain like this, and this is where you get brain herniation. Brain herniation, this is actually how this ends up killing somebody, and we'll explain that in a second here. So the, the high yield ones you wanna pay attention to are subfalcine or cingulate herniation. So you can see that here, where you, have compre where you have compression of this portion here, where it essentially slides under the falcs like this. And by herniating like in this region here, you can actually cause compression of one or both of the anterior cerebral arteries. Because if you remember, this is actually corresponds to the, the area of distribution of the ACA. And so essentially this can cause an ACA stroke because you can compress it and cause ischemia to this region of the brain. Because again, you have the branches of the, of the anterior cerebral artery traveling in this medial portion here. Then you have transtentorial or central herniation. So this is downward displacement of the brainstem. So you see the brain getting pushed down like this, and then you have the brainstem here getting pushed downward. This is very serious. It can cause deray hemorrhages which are caused by rupture of the paramedian basilar artery branches. And this is very serious because it often usually results in death. Then you have uncle herniation, which you see here, which is where you have the medial portion of the temporal lobe. So this would be the medial temporal lobe. And you can see it's getting pushed out this way. Now what's important here is that cranial nerve three, we'll draw it here, Cranial nerve three is traveling in this region. So it actually can compress by pushing it outward. It can compress the ipsilateral cranial nerve three or ocular motor nerve. So that's how an epidural hematoma can cause an ipsilateral ocular motor nerve palsy. And so it appears that's what's happening in this patient, as you can see here. It also can potentially cause compression of the ipsilateral PCA, which could give you a, a contralateral anominous hemianopia. Again, this patient isn't conscious, so we don't know if he has any visual field defects. And again, it, do, it doesn't necessarily cause all of these. It can cause any one of these, and you could see it with uncle herniation. So it's just to be aware of. Or you could see a contralateral cruciferate at the Kernohone notch. 
is the other third is the third possibility here with an uncle herniation the last thing here is a cerebellar tonsillar herniation this is what's going to happen to this guy if he's not surgically treated this is what usually kills somebody in the result of an intracranial hemorrhage um, this can also be due to really anything that's causing significant increased intracranial pressure or taking up space such as even a brain tumor this can also this is another way someone can die from a brain tumor is because it causes downward herniation of the cerebellar tonsils. This causes compression of the brainstem, which is obviously responsible for regulating heart rate, blood pressure, respiration. So you throw all of that off. And this is, this is very serious because it causes patients to slip into a coma and then death. Now, if we come back to these three key findings, this is actually the triad for uncle herniation. So you have the, the triad of really coma, which is you know lack of consciousness and agitation. And this is due to the lesion affecting the brainstem diencephalic reticular activating system, which, which contributes to consciousness. It, or it could be due to the lesion affecting, com causing serious compression of the cerebral hemispheres bilaterally. The other component here is blown pupil, which is where the pupil is fixated and dilated. So you have blown pupil. And then you have what's called here contralateral hemiplegia, which is where you see here upper extremity and lower extremity paralysis on the contralateral side. And this is due to, again, compressing those corticospinal tract. The neurons traveling within the corticospinal tract. And remember, the neurons will start up on, in this case, the right hemisphere. And then eventually they'll travel down, cross over in the brainstem, and then innervate the left side, the left upper and lower extremity. So that's why if you have compression here and interrupt these, that can interrupt, you know, innervation to the left side, the contralateral side. So that's why you see contralateral hemiplegia. So this is a triad for uncle herniation. All right, so let's go through these answer choices here. So first, obstructive hydrocephalus. This is also known as non-communicating. hydrocephalus and we go through the difference between non-communicating and communicating hydrocephalus and actually one of the earlier uh, neuro da Vinci cases so go check that one out if you want to see that but anyways in in short non-communicating or obstructive hydrocephalus is due to a physical obstruction of CSF flow within the ventricular system this is very common with fourth ventricle tumors so those pediatric tumors like medulloblastoma ependymoma those tumors that are occurring right in the cerebellum, just adjacent to the fourth ventricle and compressing it. You can also see it with cerebral aqueduct stenosis, again, another pediatric uh, condition. In a communicating hydrocephalus where you have impaired drainage at those arachnoid granulations in the superior sagittal sinus, you can actually have that, that's a communicating hydrocephalus. You actually can have those with intracranial hemorrhages. If the hemorrhage makes its way into the ventricular system, it can, the blood actually causes scarring of those arachnoid granulations and impairs CSF drainage. Compression of the left anterior cerebral artery. So again, remember we talked about this with the subfalcine herniation, you can see compression of the anterior cerebral artery. The thing here is that one, the symptoms don't correspond because you'd see more so lower extremity weakness and numbness. And with our patient, you see significant paralysis of both, both upper and lower extremities as well. Left MCA stroke or compression of the left MCA, again, you would often see that right facial droop, which you would still see this even if he's unconscious, and then also right upper extremity and right lower extremity weakness and numbness. Now, although we do see 
significant weakness of both uh, upper and lower extremity, it's on the left side in our patient. So it can't be compression of a left MCA as, as a result of his herniation. The other thing is that in real life, anything goes. There's a lot of gray area. On exams, though, it's got to be very concrete. And so it's, and it's usually classic presentations, classic scenarios. And you just classically, you don't see this with any of these herniations, compression of the middle cerebral artery. Not saying that it couldn't happen, but it, you know, again, it's not classically seen. Tonsillar herniation, again, this is what he's going to progress to if he's not treated. You're going to have compression of the medulla, respiratory arrest, blood pressure instability, and death. Basically, the patient's going to be crashing. You know, they're, they're going to be losing respiratory drive. Their blood pressure is going to be going all over the place, and eventually they'll pass away. And the thing here is we're looking for what's the most likely occurring here. Again, we have an epidural hematoma and a cranial nerve 3 palsy. And again, tonsillar herniation, you're past that point. So it, fortunately for this patient, we're not at that point yet. And so that leads us to the last answer choice here, uncle herniation, where again, like we said, you have herniation of the medial temporal lobe, and then causing compression of the ipsilateral cranial nerve 3. So again, remember radiology you're looking at, it's flipped because it's as if you're looking at it from the feet. So this is the right side, this is the left side. So you see the lesion here. He was also hit on the right side. That makes sense. Here's the right eye, the left eye. You see the ocular motor nerve palsy on the right side. It corresponds. It's the ipsilateral side. And so that leads us to where answer choice E is the most likely answer. And so what really happened here is you had you know, blunt trauma to the side of the head, epidural hematoma. That led to herniation of the medial temporal lobe and uncle herniation, which then led to compression of the ipsilateral cranial nerve 3, which gave you your ocular motor nerve palsy. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Make sure you check back every Wednesday for new Da Vinci cases. And then to see the corresponding video for this audio, check out our website at dviacademy.com, where you can also find PDF notes for this audio as well. Also on our site, you can find our book and video packages for anatomy and biochemistry. You can also follow us on Instagram for weekly posts and video. And then lastly, if you have any questions about the content of this video or about Da Vinci Academy, put them in the comments and our team will be sure to answer them. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.